listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where we'll spend our time together this morning. As you turn there, I wonder if you've ever thought about just how amazing your brain and your mind really are. Have you ever stopped to just consider about all of the, or think about all of the things that, that your brain is responsible for, not just day by day, but moment by moment, second by second, that you and I are sitting here, standing here this morning, and our heart is beating, and our lungs are breathing, and we're able to listen and comprehend and do all of those things, and, and then still, on top of all that, wonder, like, what's for lunch here in just a little bit, right? Like, you're, you're, the human mind is an amazing thing. And not only can it do all of that, but then you also think about the other things that your, your mind can do. Uh, you know, I could ask, like, by a show of hands, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, but, like, if you consider yourself creative, right, many of you would, would raise your hand, and then I would say, if you consider yourself not creative, some of us might call that normal, like, what, uh, what would you, that was a joke, all right? Uh, I, I think that creative people are, are, are normal. Uh, but uh, some of us would raise our hand, that'd be me, I, I don't find myself super creative, but it's just amazing what your mind can do. And then on top of that, you start thinking about your imagination, right? Whether you're creative or not, your imagination, the things that you can imagine, the things that you can dream about, the the things that that we can come up with, it's really amazing all that the mind can do. Our imagination can be used to help us worship, right? That sanctified imagination, Uh, The Bible tells us in Ephesians 3 that the Lord can do more than we could ask or think. Another way to think about that is the Lord can do more than we could ask or imagine, right? So the greatest thing that you can imagine, the greatest prayer that you could dream of asking, the Lord can do more, right? He can do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ask or more than you could imagine. But our imaginations can also Uh, lead us astray if we're not careful as well. Maybe when we think about who God is and what he is like, we lean more on our imagination than on scripture, right? We we imagine what God is like. We we imagine uh, without taking into account how he has revealed himself. And we, we begin, if we're not careful, to make God in our image rather than us in his image, And so here in the Ten Commandments, this is really what the Ten Commandments are about. The Ten Commandments aren't first and foremost about God giving us a list of commands or or God giving us a list of rules. First and foremost, the Ten Commandments are about God giving us a picture of God. First and foremost, the Ten Commandments are about God, period. Right? That's, that's what they are revealing to us. And so as we, we look at the Ten Commandments this morning, we're actually going to look at the first two commandments today. Uh, but as we look at these first two commands, we see this, that our God is greater than anything we can imagine. Our God is greater than anything we can imagine. So look with me here at Exodus chapter twenty. 
We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 6. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Exodus chapter 20. The Spirit says to us this. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you that we can can come and we can hear your word. We can worship you. Father, we, uh, we pray this morning that we would encounter you. Lord, that's what we need. We need a fresh encounter with you today. Maybe for some of us, we need to encounter you for the first time. And Lord, I pray that uh, that you would do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we think about the Ten Commandments. Uh, For for some of us, the Ten Commandments are very, very familiar. Uh, For others of us, maybe this is the first time that you have have taken on a a study of the Ten Commandments. Here's here's my challenge for you, for me, uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, If you have never memorized the Ten Commandments, then over the next nine weeks or so, uh, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Let's memorize the Ten Commandments together. All right, let's take some time and each week we'll walk through one of these commands and just each week let's build on these 10 commandments. And so uh, the first two commandments we've tackled this morning, those are easy, right? You shall have no gods before me and you shall have no idols, right? The, the first two commands, uh, now that's King Ethan translation, so you might have a different translation, but uh, that's, uh, that is my translation uh, but that's just my challenge for you. I think it'd be great for you. I think it'd serve you well. It'd also be great for our church to give ourselves uh, to memorizing these commandments together. Uh, so our God is greater than anything we can imagine. As we think about this, as we think about this passage that we've just read, uh, first we see this, that our God provides extravagant grace. Our God provides extravagant grace. Now, There are different things that maybe come to your mind when we think about the Ten Commandments. When you hear that phrase, the Ten Commandments, there are different things that that maybe uh, maybe come into your thoughts. Maybe one of those things is grace, but maybe it's not. But here's the truth. The Ten Commandments, they don't come to us in a vacuum. Right? The Lord didn't just beam them down, but they, they came, they're given in the context of a relationship between the Lord and his people. Look there in verse 1 and 2, and God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He, he brought them out of slavery, and now he speaks to them through Moses from the fire on Mount Sinai. We've called this series Words from the Fire because that's exactly how the Ten Commandments are given. Now, we don't, we don't have these verses on the screen, but if you've got a, a Bible there in front of you, look at Exodus 19, verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the, the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so we get this picture of an awesome God, don't we? We get this picture of a strong and a, a mighty God who speaks to his people through his prophet. And we, we get this picture first of this extravagant grace, and we, we see God's grace in two ways. First, we see God's grace in his speaking. See, anytime God speaks, anytime God reveals himself to us, that's grace for us. See, he reveals who he is. He, he reveals who we are and he, he reveals what we need. There in verse one, God spoke all these words saying that that's God being gracious. That's God acting. He didn't have to reveal himself. He didn't have to tell us who he was. And yet that's exactly what he did. Now it's important that, that Moses includes this verse one here that God spoke all these words saying because it shows us how serious we should take these commandments. The Ten Commandments weren't given by Moses and the elders of Israel to the rest of Israel. These weren't laws that the legislature dreamt up. These weren't laws that, that politicians had established. No, these were commands from the very mouth of the Lord. And so breaking the Ten Commandments is not simply or merely breaking a law. Breaking the Ten Commandments, whether it be thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not murder, whatever it is, breaking the Ten Commandments is a sin against a holy God. And so we've got we've to feel that weight that these commands are, are given by God. Now, if we were to jump straight to verse 3 where the first commandment is given, we would miss the context in which these commandments come. The, these commandments are actually given in the form of a treaty. The treaty of the day uh, would be given typically by a king or by a ruler uh, to a people. And it was started, it was prefaced, the prologue of the treaty gave some historical background. And so that's what the Lord does here. See, this is a treaty. In other words, it's a covenant document. And so the Ten Commandments, these are the beginning of the stipulations of God's covenant that he makes with Israel through Moses. This is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And so he's made this covenant with Moses for the people of Israel, and now he gives us this covenant document which gives some historical background. And so his grace is seen not just in speaking, but we see God's grace in a second way, and that's in his saving. Look at verse two, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse two, this is good news right from the mouth of God. Because understand, God doesn't say that I will save you if you keep these commandments. No, he says, because I've already saved you. I've already delivered you from the land of Egypt from the house of slavery, because I've already saved you, do this. Right? Because I've already saved you, obey, live in light of what I have already done. Israel's obedience matters, but it matters in a different way. 
See, understand this. Obedience, whether it be Israel's obedience or our obedience, is the means by which we get to enjoy what God has already done. It's the same for us today. So we can think about it like this, that God's commands are God's path to joy for his people. Sometimes we think about God's commands as maybe he's trying to keep us from something. Right? He, he says, don't do this or, or don't do that. And when we hear those commands, we approach it as if God is trying to keep us from enjoying something good. God is, God is trying to keep us from joy or satisfaction. He's trying to keep us from pleasure. But what we see over and over again through the scriptures is that God's commands are for our joy. Right? God's commands are for our pleasure. His commands are his path to joy for us. See, he's telling us people here in these 10 commandments that, that he has delivered them from physical slavery. But there's a greater problem than physical slavery, and that greater problem is spiritual slavery. And he's saying, look, if you, Israel, if you want to be free, if you want to be really free, if you want to have real joy, then the, the secret isn't to live according to your own desires and passions and wants. The secret to real joy and real freedom is to follow God's path to joy and to follow God's path to freedom. See, Israel had this temptation, and it's the same temptation that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. It's the same temptation that you and I deal with today, and it's this. Israel wanted to be like the other nations because they believed that what the other nations offered could get them what they wanted. So, so what God is doing here is he's showing Israel and he's showing us that joy is not found in what the world offers. Joy is found in what God gives. And so we've got to be careful that we, we don't believe this lie that the world can offer us something or the world does offer us something that God cannot. Israel, several times throughout their history, they would tell the Lord, make us like the other nations. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it, Judges has this refrain that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and going into 1 Samuel, Israel's asking for a king. They're saying, Lord, make us like the other nations. We want a king. And so they try to force God's hand and he he punishes them because of it. he gives them Saul, who was a wicked king. It had always been God's plan to give them a king, but he was going to give them a king in their own time. But what did Israel want? Israel wanted to be like the nations. Israel wanted to be like the world. And, and you and I today, this is what we struggle with. We might not phrase it like this, but we struggle with wanting to be like the world. We struggle with believing that the world can offer us what God doesn't. But here's the question. How's it going for the world? Right? How's it going for, according to the world's wisdom? Depression is on the rise. Suicide has become an epidemic. There's brokenness and pain and division everywhere. Here's the thing. Obviously, what the world has does not work. But we can take to the bank that what God offers does. And the reason we know that God's will and God's ways work for our satisfaction, work for our joy, is because God is the one who designed us, right? God is the one who created us. He made us to live in conformity to his rules 
and his commands, because his commands are good. Maybe, maybe you have kids who, who like to, to ride their, uh, their skateboards or their scooters or something like that in the road. Our, our kids like to do that, and uh, they have to wear their helmets and, uh, because there's construction trucks coming through. You know, we tell them, hey, there's a, uh, there's a truck coming through. You've got to get off the road. And that's not a suggestion. That's a command, right? That, that's, not, that's not me saying, hey, if you feel like it, come on over here. If not, stay in the road, right? No, that's a command. And it's a command because if they don't, the truck will kill them. The most loving thing that I can do for my kids in that moment is to give them a command to move, otherwise die. The most loving thing that our God can do is to give us a command when death is knocking at our door. Right, the most loving thing he can do is to pull us out of harm's way, and that's what his commands are. His commands are freeing us from sin, freeing us from that grip, and showing us the path to life. See, our God, he provides this extravagant grace through his speaking and his saving. Next we see this is that our God demands exclusive loyalty. He demands exclusive loyalty. See, exclusivity has always been a, a mark of who God is and how he operates. He, he says that he doesn't share his glory with anyone. That there, there are no other gods. Or that the, the gods of the world cannot stand in the face of our God, of Yahweh. Look at verse three. We have the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's the point of the first commandment. Yahweh is unique. Yahweh is unique. Notice in verse two, he says, I am the Lord, your God. That Lord, you'll notice there, it's written in a different way. That's the covenant name. That's Yahweh. That's, that's the name that, that he had invited his people to use when they, they spoke of him. And so he says, you shall have no other gods before me because he is unique. There is no God like him. No other God can do what Yahweh does. This commandment really makes the rest of the commandments make sense. The, there's a structure to the Ten Commandments. The, the Ten Commandments aren't just thrown up and then ordered however we want. No, there's a, a structure to them that has historically been called the two tables of the law. And so the first table is the, the first four commandments. And these first four commandments have to deal with our relationship with God. The second table of the law are the last six commandments that govern, that instruct our relationships with one another. This is why when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment, he summarizes the law in two commands. He says the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first table of the law. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second table of the law. And so there's a structure here. And so the first commandment is foundational for all the others. When we break any of the other nine commandments, it's because we are putting some other God before our God. Now, here's the key to understanding this commandment. The key to understanding this commandment is to understand the last two words of the command. You shall have no other gods before me. What, is, what does it mean to have no other gods before Yahweh? 
Well, that, that phrase before me, the, the idea that's being communicated there is in my presence. So it's as if, as if Yahweh is saying, you shall have no other gods in my presence. He's prohibiting worship of any God in addition to Yahweh. See, this is what's going to distinguish Israel from all of the other nations. You might say, well, does this mean there are other gods? There's something called henotheism. So monotheism is that there's one God. Henotheism is this, is loyalty to one God out of many. That's not what's happening here. The, the first commandment is not, is not God saying that you shall have no other gods before me because there are some other gods. No, it, what he's doing here is he's indicting all of the false gods. He's saying you shall have no other gods before me because all of these other gods that all of the nations have, they are false gods. They are powerless gods. To understand this, we've got to understand a little bit of the, the cultural context of what's happening as Israel is receiving these commands. So in the, the ancient Near East, the prevailing thought uh, from the nations around Israel that made up this region of the world was that gods worked in community with one another. So there was no one God that was powerful enough to control and to rule and to reign over everything. And so you had to have this God for this thing and, and this God for this thing and, and that God for that area or that God for that situation. The first commandment shows that our God needs no help. He, he doesn't need other gods to help him rule and reign over the universe in fact, what it shows is that all of the other gods are fake and all of the other gods are powerless. And so it's almost, there's some irony here of Yahweh saying, you shall have no other gods before me because there are no other gods, right? You shall have no other gods before me because there are no other gods that are an option, right? This, this isn't the 10 suggestions. This is the 10 commandments, right? This, this is Yahweh saying, you will worship me and me alone because there's no other gods to worship. There's no other gods that are needed. See, this command defines who Yahweh is, but it also defines who Israel was to be. Throughout the history of Israel, we see this over and over through the Old Testament. They were tempted towards syncretism. Now, syncretism is it's blending the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. And what he does here is he forbids that. See, understand this. This is what the first commandment is teaching us. That God is God alone and our God is God enough. Right? We don't need another God. We don't need more because God is enough. Now, Israel struggled with syncretism. And this is also a prevailing temptation for you and I today. That we would blend our worship of God with other things. See, worship, we could, we could simply define worship as this. It's ascribing worth to something. It's ascribing ultimate value to something. It's setting our hearts on what we think will satisfy us. And our great temptation is that we would set our heart and our hope in the wrong place and on the wrong things. We might not be tempted to worship the gods of the nations, 
But we are tempted to worship lesser gods that we might not see coming. And ultimately, here's the, 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 real, the real danger. Isn't that these gods that we worship are out there, but this God that we worship is right here. Right, that we are tempted to make ourselves our own little gods. And, and so we, we decide that we are going to, to operate according to our own wants and desires because ultimately we know better than God. Ultimately, we know better than Yahweh. And it's, it's in this that we see the connection between the, the first and the second commandment. So uh, our God provides extravagant grace and he demands exclusive loyalty. Finally, we see this is that our God gives us a better image. See, the problem isn't that we don't know how to worship. The problem is that we worship the wrong things. And understand this, that misplaced worship can be deadly. Misplaced worship can be deadly, not just now. Misplaced worship can be damning for eternity. We worship the wrong things. And so the, the first commandment instructs, instructs us to have no other gods before Yahweh. The second commandment warns us against making them ourselves. So the first commandment stresses God's uniqueness. The second commandment stresses his incomparability. There's, there's nothing that compares to God. So there's no God like our God. There's no person like our God. There's no thing like our God. Look at verse four. The Lord says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This is a command against using created things to worship as if they have God's presence or are God themselves. Right? God's clear that nothing that Israel creates can hold or communicate the glory of God. Now, I don't think that the danger for you and I today is that we are going to leave this place, go find a rock and carve a God. I don't think the danger for us is that we're gonna leave this place and we're gonna go grab a stick and that we are going to turn that stick into our God. That might be a danger for some, but I don't think that's where the greatest danger for you and I is today. But that doesn't mean that idolatry is not a danger for us. Listen to the way Tim Keller defines an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So here's the thing. Idolatry is much more common and much more dangerous than we realize. So how do we know if we're engaged in idol worship? How do we know if we are engaged in idol practice? And, and here's, here's what we need to understand is that we are all guilty of this. So let me give you, let me give you just a couple of questions to to kind of help inspect your heart on uh, am I engaged in idol worship? One is this. What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? What do you daydream about? That's not to say that what you daydream about is your idol, but I, I think that what you daydream about is worth asking yourself, why is that what I daydream about? Why is that where my mind drifts to? Why is that where my mind goes? Here's a second question, and this one might be a little, a little more pointed, a little less abstract as this, is what is it in your life that if you did not have it, you would feel like life is not worth living and life is not valuable? What is that thing in your life that if you did not have, you would not want to keep going? 
Now, there are good gifts that we might include in that. And here's what I want us to understand is that good gifts can turn into bad idols. That, That good gifts can turn into really bad idols. Are are you constantly thinking about your career? Is your career where you find your identity? Is your, your money, your possessions, your home? If you lost that, would you would you struggle to keep going? We can we can turn our families into idols. Right? So that we are constantly looking towards our husbands or our wives to give us our sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. We can turn our, our children into idols when we're constantly looking to them for our joy, and then whenever they don't fill us with joy, we get frustrated. But see, whenever, whenever we understand, we keep things in their right place, then, then we can enjoy those gifts without turning them into idols. See, here's the danger of idolatry. It tempts us to make a God who looks like us, to make a God who exists for us, but that ultimately it's a God who can never satisfy us. In verse five, we see just how serious God takes idolatry. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. See, idols aren't to be played with, they're to be destroyed. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says there, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will hate the other and love the one. Idolatry ultimately divides us. Now we read verse five there, and maybe when you first read it, that your question is, so does this mean that, that God is punishing generations after one person is guilty of idolatry? Well, that, that's not what he says here because under, understand the end of verse five. He says he, he punishes those who hate me. So the generations who share their father's punishment also share their father's sins. So, so what he's saying is he's saying that it's not a good enough excuse to say, God, I didn't know, because now they know. It's not a good enough excuse to say, God, I, I wasn't aware because now they're aware. Do you remember what Israel was doing while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments? They were making an idol, right? They, and think about what, what had happened. Right? They, they had just been delivered from slavery. They had walked through the sea on dry land and looked back and watched the waves come crashing down on Pharaoh's army. They, they had sojourned in the wilderness and manna from heaven rained down on them. And I don't know what that manna was. My guess is it was something like my wife's banana bread and then banana pudding and then the cinnamon rolls from Aunt Catfishes, if you've ever had those, like you understand what this is, right? It was just something wonderful. They, they had tasted water from the rock. And then Moses goes up on the mountain and what is the first thing they do? Bring us your gold so we can make an idol. And then Moses comes down and they say, we didn't know. We didn't know. And I've got to think that after Moses gets over his rage, we know he comes down and he breaks the, the tablets. 
that he's got to think like, did y'all not read the second commandment? Right? Did, you, did you not hear? That it's not a good enough excuse to say you didn't know because you did know. You had seen Yahweh's provision. You had seen what he had done. You had seen how good he had been. And yet that still wasn't enough. But verse six, we have this contrast. It says that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What this means is that God has perfect love for those who imperfectly keep his commands. That we might not be perfect, but as we seek to follow him and honor him and love him, then we can follow him and we can experience and encounter his love. It's interesting this, that idolatry is dangerous not because the Lord doesn't want us to see him. The Lord does want us to see him. Idolatry is dangerous because it gives us a picture that it is not good enough. See, God gives us a better picture. In fact, God gives us the only picture that we need of who he is in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to four, tells us that, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The, the only image that you and I need is Jesus. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a picture of Jesus. In fact, I try not to look at pictures of Jesus because I don't want my imagination to be held captive by those pictures. Instead, the picture of Jesus that we need, the picture of God that we need is right here in the scriptures. And that it's right here in the scriptures that as we read these scriptures, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we get a picture of who our God is like. Have you ever stopped to consider that if God wanted to, he could have revealed himself through a DVD? He could have emailed us a picture. Right? He could have videoed the acts of Jesus. He's big enough that he he could have accelerated technology just that fast, or he could have set it down right there in the ancient years. But how did God reveal himself? He revealed himself through words. He he revealed himself through scripture. And what he tells us is that this is enough. That scripture is enough, and that in scripture, we have an image of the perfect God-man. We have the perfect image of Jesus Christ. See, our God is greater than anything we can imagine. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves today. Where are you and I tempted to make little idols? Where are you and I tempted to worship the wrong things? Is it that we're tempted to find our identity in the money that we can make or the status that we can enjoy? Are we tempted to find our identity in the toys that we have or in the family that God has given us? Are we, we tempted to find our identity in the places that we live? Or are we committed and convinced that we need to root our identity in Jesus and in Jesus alone? The next question is this is, well, how do we keep ourselves from worshiping the wrong things? Here's how you keep yourself from worshiping the wrong thing. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So how do you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus by constantly reminding yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done. That that every moment of every day, that that you've got to fight to believe and to remember that, that Jesus 
lived in your place. Jesus died in your place on the cross for your sins. Jesus was buried in your place and Jesus rose from the grave in your place. And he, he conquered sin and he conquered death and he secured your eternity. And if your eternity is secured, then what else do you need? If your eternity is secured, then who cares what other people think of you? If your eternity is secured, then who cares how much money you make because it's not going with you, right? You will not need it. If your eternity is secure and you have been forgiven and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then nothing else matters. And the way we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus is we keep reminding ourselves of that. That I have Jesus, but even more important than that is Jesus has me. And so even whenever I, and I'm, I, I don't feel like keeping those commands. I, I don't feel like following him. I, I don't feel like I can keep going. Jesus keeps holding us. Jesus keeps grasping us. And Jesus is the one who carries us all the way home. If you have never met that Jesus, we want you to meet him today. Thank you again for listening to Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.